0: Welcome to Rose Tinted, a podcast where we challenge the limits of our nostalgia by re-examining some of our favourite childhood movies. I'm Ollie Chip. And I'm Paddy HK. And today we will be discussing Goldeneye. (laughs) ( drawers) (laughs) finally a james
1: bond we've got to that point yeah it's been a while it's been a while and this was also our first audience poll, was it not? It was, yeah. Yeah, because we genuinely couldn't decide whether to do this one or Tomorrow Never Dies, which I guess is something I'll explain a little bit more as we go into the episode. Uh, but yeah, we actually we did a poll with our audience on Instagram and they voted very heavily in favour of us discussing GoldenEye. I believe it was 70%, <laughs> 30% in favour of GoldenEye. I mean, we might get to Tomorrow Never Dies at some point in the future, but as far as a first step into the Bond franchise, franchise, franchise goes. I think we could have done a lot worse.
0: Yeah, for sure. I am a little bit disappointed we're not doing Tomorrow Never Dies though. Yeah. Goldeneye is like ubiquitous, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas Tomorrow Never Dies, it seems a bit more niche.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: basically just it's a bit more shit, I think.
1: Yeah, definitely, (laughs) definitely. And also the main thing I remember from Tomorrow Never Dies is that it's all about like fake news and like out of control media barons which potentially pretty relevant in the current political landscape. Well I mean Russians with weapons isn't too far out of it either is it? Mate I wasn't even going to go there. I wasn't (laughs) even going to go there because I feel like it's a little bit too on the nose you know? Yeah. I mean it's a James Bond movie the likelihood of the bad guys being Russian is very high. Yeah I mean particularly post-Cold War right? Yeah exactly. Exactly. So yeah We are discussing Goldeneye today, as I've said, our first foray into the Bond franchise. But before we get into that, I just need to give a bit of background information about this podcast to anyone that may not have heard it before. So Ollie and I are old friends who decided to make a list of our favorite childhood movies so we could revisit them one by one to see if they still hold up to scrutiny some loose rules for our selection process the movies have to bear some kind of significance to our childhood or early adolescence and we try to only select movies that we have not watched since that time so without much further ado Ollie why don't you tell us a little bit about Goldeneye
0: uh Goldeneye was released in 1995 it's directed by Martin Campbell who actually, is also the director of Casino Royale, which was the first outing of Daniel Craig as Bond. Yeah. And Casino Royale, I think, is actually one of my favourite Bond movies. Definitely my favourite Daniel Craig.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: And there are elements of that directing style in this film as well. Um, Anyway, £60 it cost to make, which I think is a reasonable budget considering some of the action set pieces they've got going on in this film.
1: Yeah. I mean, the scale of this movie is just astronomical at points, you know, quietly. Yeah,
0: I mean, there's a reason for it. Um, basically this was the revamping of the James Bond franchise mm-hmm. It got a little bit stale in the sort of late 80s The last Bond movie before this one was Licensed to Kill Which was um, Timothy Dalton in 1989 Timothy Dalton playing Bond
1: Oh wow so there was like six years between that movie and this one
0: Yeah so I think it's
1: the biggest gap they've had since starting making them
0: And the Dalton movies were a little bit of a mixed bag In terms of critical and audience response I think they just got a little bit Stale so they really wanted to reinvigorate the franchise, get some new new faces in, both in front of and behind the camera. And you can sort of get the vibe that that is happening. Like, this is like the new spectacular, like, all singing, all dancing James Bond. Yeah, this isn't your dad's Bond. No, ex- <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's, it's like new age James Bond with, like, it's got computers and things
1: in it, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, and hackers.
0: Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so it was a bit of a gamble, I think, with this big changing of the guards. Mm. But it definitely paid off because, like I said, sixty million budget but grossed three hundred and fifty-six million. So it did a good job, and uh, I think a lot of that is down to the casting because Pierce mm-hmm. Brosnan is a beast, yeah. and finally. Finally, on the podcast, we get to talk about Sean Bean.
1: Yes, absolutely. Who is my favourite actor. Oh, I didn't know he was your favourite actor. Oh yeah, man, he is is definitely my favourite actor, for sure. Man, he is such a phenomenal casting choice in this movie. I mean, we will go into this properly, but I think Brosnan and Bean, side by side in this movie, are just fantastic together. They're such a good pairing, and Sean Bean is just... An excellent villain to have in your movie.
0: Yeah, he always is. He always gives his performances like the full bean. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, definitely. He gives it
1: all of the beans that he can. Oh, oh, he's never a half baked bean. Ah, there you go. There
0: you go. <laughs> um, shout out to Judy Dench as well in this movie. I think she's excellent.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the cast is generally really strong because you've got, yeah, uh, Brosnan, Bean, Judy Dench. Famke Janssen as well yeah. as Xenia on a top. Excellent villain. Little cameo as well. Little cameo from Robbie Coltrane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Alan Cumming as well obviously plays Boris. So we've got a bit of high quality Scottish talent in the movie as well. Yeah, I think basically just overall some really good names in the cast. Yeah.
0: It's actually the first Bond film... That wasn't based on the writing of Ian Fleming as well. Oh, really? Ian Fleming novels were the basis for all of the films up until this point, and it was sort of floundering. Like mm. I said, the franchise was floundering. So they needed something new. So you've got this, you know, fresh face directing, you've got this new bond, mm. and you're also not basing your story on the writings of the author. Mm. I think that's that all contributes to this sort of fresh-faced James Bond. Yeah. Would you like my Synopsi. Uh, Yes, please. Yes, give me your back-of-the-box synopsis first, please. After the murderous theft of a powerful military weapon, codename Goldeneye, 007 must play a dangerous game of cat and mouse with an elusive and enigmatic arms dealer. But Bond's past is coming back to haunt him, and not everyone is as they seem. Can Bond stop the sinister plot before
1: the world's economy is plunged into the Dark Ages? <laughs> very good, very good. I like how you avoided spoilers as well. <laughs> I know, like no one's seen this movie. Yeah, which not many VHS blurbs <laughs> would have done. Yeah, Um. and my
0: one sent. well, this is two sentences, but I think it still counts. Um. My one sentence synopsis is, Pierce versus Sean, what more could you want? Disclaimer, featuring bad Russian accents.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: very true. Very true. So, why is this movie on our list, Paddy? I think we're going to have very similar reasons for it being on there. Um, so why have we why have we put it on the list?
1: Well, um, I sort of hinted at this a bit earlier, but obviously we needed to discuss a Bond movie, uh, and Brosnan was our Bond. I think everyone is sort of biased towards their own generation's Bond, but, you know, Brosnan was our Bond, and I think, personally, he's a fantastic Bond. This wasn't my first Bond movie, though, which is why Tomorrow Never Dies was also on the table for us, because Tomorrow Never Dies was actually my first experience with the Bond franchise, Mm -hmm. and I have a strange fondness for that movie because it was my first introduction to it. The main element of nostalgia I've seen for this movie, like, I have seen it before, obviously, when I was younger. I've not seen it in a very long time, but my main feelings of nostalgia towards this movie are actually rooted in the video game, which was on N64. Yeah. So most of the memories I have of this movie and most of the feelings I have towards this movie are actually tied up in my experiences of playing the video game which I played a lot more than I watched this you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so haven't watched it in ages Uh, I remembered quite a bit though like I remembered the general plot structure and the progression of the narrative but there were a few scenes that jumped out at me before going into this viewing so Xenia Onatop who is like the femme fatale in this movie who's played by fam kate jansen the scene where she crushes a man to death with her thighs really scared me as a kid um and i remember <laughs> i was watching this movie with my mum and i got freaked out about her crushing this man to death with her thighs and she was like well that's why it's a 12 <laughs> <laughs> i thought you, i thought
0: you're gonna say i thought you're gonna say it like sparked a uh you know, a sex talk between you and your mum. It's like, <laughs> no, this no, is no.
1: the catalyst for the birds and the bees in your family. I would have never, ever left the house if that were the case. Um But yeah, so I remembered the sight of his corpse falling out of the wardrobe, being really freaky, like that frightened yeah. me quite a lot when I was younger. And yeah, I'm pretty positive this was a 12 when it came out, but according to Amazon, it's a 15. Really? So I don't know if they've decided to reclassify it over the years. I don't know. Anyway, that's besides the point. Um I remembered Boris being frozen at the end, so at the end boris the um rogue computer hacker he stands up and says his catchphrase i am invincible uh, just as a tank of liquid nitrogen explodes all over him and he's frozen in place and i remembered sean bean's iconic death scene uh, specifically the line for england james No, for me.
0: Yeah, that's good.
1: So that was what I went into this movie with. I had seen it when I was a kid. I hadn't seen it since I was, yeah, about 12 years old. But my main memories of it were actually of the video game. Uh, What about you?
0: Well, I was a Bond fanatic when I was younger. Mm. This wasn't my first Bond either, but I grew up with, you know, all of the classics. Mm. I used to watch a lot of Roger Moore. I watched a lot of Live and Let Die, actually, when I was a kid. But I had a huge VHS collection. I had this awesome collection, right, where... You bought the VHS tapes, and if you stacked them on your shelf, it made like a panoramic
1: Image of all the Bonds together. I remember that my mate had that collection on his shelf and I, it was actually his house where I would watch all the uh, Bond movies. Um yeah, he had the same thing. I didn't have the full set, so like I was slowly collecting the VHSs to get this picture on the shelf, which I really liked.
0: I had I also had like Top Trump cards. I got like a subscription to a magazine about James Bond, so like I was really, really into it. Mm. When I was a kid though, not a lot of the plots or characters or anything made any real sense to me. I yeah. just enjoyed the cars and the and the action sequences really mm-hmm. and the gadgets and this film has all of that like in abundance so I was really enamoured with this film when I was a kid mm. um, I didn't have an N64 or um, and I didn't really play it very much when I was growing up um, but In recent years, GoldenEye on the N64 has become one of my favourite games to play.
1: Oh, interesting. Does that hold up?
0: Absolutely. It's a really important turning point in particularly first-person shooter video games. But Mm. just in video games generally, it's a seminal piece of work. And I think it's really odd that this game that is based on a movie from the mid-90s is such an important chapter in video game history. Yeah, yeah. We're not going to talk about the game in too much detail, but like the single-player campaign follows loosely the narrative of the film, but all of the levels are really intuitively designed and the AI of the non-player characters is really, um, really intuitive as well. You know, the different selections of guns and gadgets you Mm. can use and the four-player multiplayer deathmatch mode as well. Like all of these things that are just bread and butter for shooter games now were basically designed in that N64 game. Yeah. And it's it's still fantastic. Like I still get it out occasionally, my N64 and play it now. Nice. But in terms of the film and, and its memories, like I, I have quite a good memory of it. I quote lines from this film quite a lot in my mm-hmm. everyday life. Um, I have seen it since I was a kid because I, I actually do think it's just a good action movie. That's why I was sort of more interested in watching Tomorrow Never Dies for this because I haven't seen that for years. Whereas yeah. Golden Eye is a little bit of a cheat because I've seen it more recently.
1: Okay, I- interesting, interesting. But it's fair to say either way that you went into this viewing with a strong sense of nostalgia for the movie.
0: Yeah, definitely. And actually, like i remember all of the beats of the narrative quite vividly there wasn't anything really that i'd forgotten per se but i just paid a little bit more attention to the subtleties of this film watching it for the podcast mm-hmm. so things that maybe i would have glazed over a little bit watching it just for fun i'm sort of yeah focusing on for this episode so in terms of memories of it really strong memories of it um and i'm not going to list all of the moments that i that i remember because i remember most of it but just like there's a few little nuances and things that jumped out at me that i didn't notice um mm-hmm. You know, in previous viewings.
1: Yeah, I reckon this is actually going to be a pretty interesting conversation because I think we're coming at it from slightly different perspectives because even though this movie was important to my upbringing, the GoldenEye franchise was important to my upbringing, I was not a Bond fanatic. I don't have strong nostalgia towards this franchise at all. I watched the Brosnan movies. I maybe watched a couple of the other ones. So, yeah, I don't have a strong attachment to... To this franchise in the same way that you do so there's maybe a slight possibility that i will be a little bit more critical of it um <laughs> that's refreshing because it's usually maybe the horrible cynical bastard but it's your turn now <laughs> <laughs> yeah well we'll see how we get on but i think it will be an interesting conversation either way but yeah i guess should we just get right into it or should we start by talking about the things we enjoyed in this movie let's do it Okay, Ollie, what were some of the things that you enjoyed about this movie?
0: First and foremost, we should probably discuss Pierce Brosnan as as Bond. Absolutely. Maybe I'm biased, because like you said, he's our generation's Bond, but I think he's a fucking quality James Bond. Oh, yeah. His posture and his gesturing and his facial expressions, they all just ooze this sort of charisma Mm. that you want from a hammy spy that can, you know, seduce women with a look and is impervious to any form of harm. Like, he just fits that... Bill really nicely. Yeah. Um, And it's a stroke of genius whoever cast him in this role. Um, And I think actually to have someone younger playing Bond is a really important part of this franchise. Like like I said, the changeover of this franchise happens in, in this movie. And I think having someone young and fresh-faced and energetic in the lead role is super important. And he pulls it off fantastically. Yeah. I particularly like his introduction. The classic James Bond formula is that you'll have like a pre-title action sequence. We'll talk about the action set pieces, but it's a fantastic opening sequence. And I think his introduction in that sequence is, is great as well because we're not shown his face. Yeah, like we see him moving around in close up, and he's doing all of these things sort of in the dark, and you can see his silhouette and in the shadows. And then the first time we see him, he comes down from a vent
1: and punches someone on the face while they're on the toilet reading the newspaper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, upside down. He's upside, upside down. There's <laughs> a man sat on the toilet, and he says, "Mind if I drop in?" And then punches him in the fucking face. And, and yeah, that's a that's a strong intro to Brosnan as Bond. Fantastic, Andrea. And let's be real as well. No matter who you think the best Bond is, you know, whether you think it's Connery or Moore or whoever, whatever, you cannot deny that Pierce Brosnan is by far the most attractive Bond. (laughs) Objectively. Yeah, objectively speaking, (laughs) he is a very handsome man. And I think, you know, not to be shallow, but you need that with a Bond. For sure. You need him to basically just be a slab of meat, don't you? And I think Pierce Brosnan fulfills that. This is the thing,
0: because, like... Roger Moore was pushing, like, 50-odd. Bless him, like, he's brilliant. But you don't want some, like, crusty old codger playing your Bond. You want someone who's a little bit sharper,
1: Mm. a little bit more youthful. And, yeah, like I said, Pierce Brosnan is perfect for it. Although he was 42 when he first started uh, being Bond. He was already in his 40s. But he just, he looks
0: young, doesn't he? He's still got the vigour of youth about him. He's not like, Roger Moore never, you never saw Roger Moore running (laughs) in in a Bond movie, do you know what I mean? (laughs) He just sort of like sauntered about, whereas Brosnan's like actually running around and has energy, particularly in the action scenes. He fires a gun with gusto, this guy. Yeah, definitely.
1: And uh, (laughs) he has boyish charm, as M puts it. Yes. Your boyish charms are lost on me, Bond.
0: Um,
1: (laughs) He's a fantastic Bond, a really, really great casting choice. And I think we have to move on from Pierce Brosnan as Bond immediately to Sean Bean as Alec Trevelyan because he is the perfect foil to Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, for sure. There's this intensity to his performance and it's very theatrical. It borders on being over the top and like scenery chewing, but he just about pulls it back from that line line and makes it very convincing Mm -hmm. he's like a comic book villain leaping off the page and like again he's dripping with charisma Every moment that he's on screen, yeah,
0: he's like the mirror image, isn't he? Yeah, Bond. He's like the dark shadow of Pierce Brosnan's Bond, and that's exactly what you want because they're both agents. You get the impression that they are equally matched in terms of their martial skill as well as their wits. Yeah, and that's exactly what you want. That's exactly what you want your villain to be. You don't want them to be some like. Useless twat that's never mm. gonna live up to the, the abilities of the protagonist. You want someone who's
1: genuinely quite a threat. Yeah, and he's exactly that and has a personal connection with your protagonist as well and Mm. I think that's one of the things the film does really well, it establishes this connection between Alec and Bond within, you know the first five minutes of the movie and their chemistry is so good that you really buy into it, you believe that these two are friends, you believe that they're colleagues and that they've been working together for a long time so when, spoilers, Alec eventually betrays Bond towards the latter half of the movie, or it becomes clear that he was always, you know a double agent that betrayal feels real you know uh, mm-hmm. and you, you don't see them together as friends for very long at all but they do a lot with that time and i think that that is very much down to the performances of these two actors and the chemistry between them
0: yeah for sure and in, just in general like all of the villains are played brilliantly in this movie like on a top is terrifying in every aspect like she is just terrifying like she's beautiful she's powerful she gets weird sexual gratification from killing people so you have this femme fatal lust murderer who's like the skivvy <laughs> for this very eloquent very intelligent very cunning main villain but it's a really good mixture
1: yeah absolutely and i've actually got quite a lot to say about xenia on a top uh in both sections of this podcast actually as i'm sure you can imagine but <laughs> uh, one thing is clear, she is the concept of the femme fatale, the classic femme fatale, taken to its most logical extreme. Yeah,
0: it's giving a, a femme fatale an AK-47 and just going, there you go, have some fun. It's exactly what she does. Like, I particularly like the bit where she just butchers the staff of that satellite relay and she just hmm. unloads an entire magazine of an AK into these like innocent civilians. And she's just sort of like... <laughs> coming. Yeah, she's basically she's basically having an orgasm while she's doing it. And like she takes a big sniff of the
1: smoke coming out the end of the gun. She's just like fucking terrifying, basically. Yeah, like I said though, I think I do have slight problems with that archetype and the way they handle her character but one thing you can't say you can't take away the strength of Fam Kate Janssen's performance. You know, mm-hmm. accent notwithstanding it's a <laughs> yeah. great casting choice and it's a great performance. You can say that about them all though, really. All yeah. of the, the quote-unquote Russians <laughs> in this movie, yeah. you could probably say that about. Yeah, 100%, 100%. But like, she brings a similar level of of intensity to her performance and I would actually argue that the vast majority of the cast bring a level of intensity to their characters in this movie for sure Yeah, and I think just a couple of nods to seeing as we're talking about casting just a couple of nods to some of the sort of more minor characters firstly I thought Isabella Skorupko Skarupko? Something like that, yeah. Really apologize for butchering that name there. Firstly, I thought she gave a really good performance. Like, there's a few moments throughout the movie where the script requires her to um, bring a lot of emotional gravitas to her performance, and she pulls it off really, really well. But I also just like the character, and I think one of the main issues with Bond movies is that the female protagonists of these movies are really, like, two-dimensional a lot of the time and they're basically just arm candy for Bond and characters for him to rescue like damsels in distress and I think To give this movie some credit, it was at least trying to revamp the concept of the Bond girl with Natalia. Yeah,
0: she has agency, doesn't she? Like, she's an essential part of the the ending, really.
1: Yeah. She causes the downfall of Alex Trevelyan.
0: Like, she's an essential part of it. Like, she does play the role of the damsel in distress, but that turns reasonably quickly into an accomplice for Bond who is equally useful in the final act she's not just something to be rescued and taken as a trophy like she's actually a useful character and has agency in those moments
1: well even before she meets Bond she's kicking ass she's getting shit done on her own terms so she escapes the massacre at the computer station where uh, Onatop and General Oromov massacre all the computer programmers and steal the GoldenEye she's the only one that survives she tricks Onatop into thinking that she's crawled into a vent when in fact she's hiding in a cupboard and then she climbs out of this exploding building sort of by herself and then I think it's implied that she steals a bunch of like huskies and like snow <laughs> yeah. dogs out of there. I lo- I also love
0: the conveniently placed husky dogs. Yeah. Just around the corner from the like apocalyptic
1: explosion of the satellite relay. Yeah those dogs don't get spooked by nothing. Nah. No number of exploding satellites are going to frighten those <laughs> dogs away. They're going to wait patiently and <laughs> diligently for the first person that needs to use them. But yeah it's. Um, It's interesting because like you said, she does get damseled and she does become sort of more of a love interest, but she doesn't ever stop being an important agent of the plot. Which I think isn't nothing.
0: Particularly in this franchise, to be honest. Like, she is playing the role of a Bond girl. And, like, you know, the name by its very nature just suggests being passive, right? Mm -hmm. Bond girl, you are owned by the protagonist. Yeah. You have no agency yourself. Um, And also, like, the weird infantilization calling them Bond girls as well. Yeah. It does not sit well with me at all. Yeah. But they do a good job of making her an actual woman, female, human character. Yeah. And, yeah, she's one of my favorite female characters in the franchise for sure.
1: Oh yeah, 100%. She's memorable. She's very memorable and again that is down to the performance of the actor as well and I think that we will sort of discuss how potentially superficial some of these attempts at modernising Bond and making it more progressive are but There is a lot to like about her character, and I think that is worth acknowledging. Mm -hmm. But that's more or less all I've got to say on the casting and the characters. Shall we move on to discuss this movie's main strength, in my opinion, which is the action set pieces?
0: Yeah. Like I said, the opening is timeless isn't it yeah what an opening the jump off the dam i think there was actually a someone did like a bit of research into whether or not bungee jumping off a huge dam and then shooting a piece of zip line into some concrete will stop will either stop you from bouncing back up or rip you in half and i think the conclusion (laughs) was it will certainly rip you in half not bond though no but not but obviously not bond but it's a fantastic, fantastic set piece. Yeah. I love the fact they use miniatures in the opening as well, which is brilliant. Oh yeah. They use a lot of
1: miniatures throughout the movie. A lot yeah. of the
0: explosion scenes happen with miniatures. Which is a lovely callback to, you know, the previous Bonds in the franchise using yeah. those sorts of low budget techniques because I think this is the highest budget on a Bond film. Like this is the turning of Bond into mm. a blockbuster franchise. Before that they were quite low budget, whereas this one is like, you know, cranking it up to eleven in terms of the set pieces. Yeah. And I just love the fact that they, instead of using horrible horrible horrible
1: CGI which they could have done they decided to use miniatures which I thought was great yeah absolutely and I actually reckon the opening sequence is a pitch perfect action set piece it establishes Bond it establishes Trevelyan, it establishes Oromov and it gives you a real sense of the scale of the movie going forward another sort of action set piece I wanted to touch on is the tank scene it's my favorite it's amazing it's my favorite set piece in the entirety of james bond ever i absolutely fucking love that sequence it is brilliant. It is an excellent scene and there's something about the sight of Pierce Brosnan calmly driving a tank through buildings whilst <laughs> adjusting his tie that is just incredible. The build-up to it is they're having a shootout, aren't they? And he
0: jumps out of a window to avoid being shot by, again, like another battalion of Russian soldiers who apparently cannot hit a barn door with a banjo, it seems. <laughs> but he jumps out of this window and then he lands in a parking lot and he's like, right, where do I go from here? And he just sort of like, his uh, eye line just sort of stops and then it cuts to just a wide shot of the tank just in the, yeah, yeah. In the car park and yeah. then we get a hard cut to a wall and everything's quiet and then the tank bursts through the wall and he's yeah. driving it and it, it is just excellent and he's doing like handbrake turns in this thing 360s <laughs> He's driving over statues. I particularly like the moment, and I think they missed a trick here. I like the moment when he drives through the lorry transporting Perrier drinks cans. Yeah, They missed an opportunity because he should have... Picked up one of those Opened it And had a little swig
1: He definitely should have done that And the fact that he didn't Annoyed me a little bit But I love it still Well no, That's because Bond's above Perrier It's not a fucking martini Like why would he drink it That's why he crashed through the truck It's beneath him I can almost guarantee you There was a conversation though Because This is the
0: dawn of product placement In James Bond movies You have the BMW You have the Rolexes um, I bet you the Perrier people were like please please can you get pierced and just take a sip and just go oh delicious or something yeah. and they're like no it's going to ruin the flow but I actually think although I am very much against that gratuitous product placement I think it would be hilarious
1: yeah it would have been hilarious um, but I think my favourite part of that scene is um, the statue of Tsar Nicholas getting <laughs> caught on top of the tank yeah. and it's just this statue of Nicholas on like a pegasus and yeah. it just gets stuck on top of the tank and he's just ferrying Tsar Nicholas through the streets of Moscow. And that sort of demonstrates that Bond is at its best when it's being a silly and over-the-top action movie. Whenever it tries to do anything more cerebral, it starts to lose me a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that's why that's why the Daniel Craig
0: movies, although they're good movies in the sense that they have high production values, they've got, again, good casting, they take themselves just a little bit too seriously. Yeah. And I think that's what this era of Bond has over the Daniel Craig movies is that they're just a little bit sillier. Yeah. Which is what you need with James Bond because it's absurd. James bond is just absurd it shouldn't be taken seriously really and i like the fact that this one just has that absurdity that comedy to it from its melodrama and from its over-the-top action
1: yeah i suppose there is a conversation to be had about how self-aware the movie is oh for sure yeah because you know i'm not 100 percent convinced that it is as aware of how silly it is as we'd maybe want it to be, but it allows itself to have fun. Yeah. And that can't be denied. And I think that, as you say, is is important in movies like this. And I just want to move on to talk about the last action set piece that I wanted to discuss, which was actually the final scene, uh, which is such an impressive finale to this movie, like on like an absurdly huge satellite dish. And again, I think they've used (laughs) miniatures and they've used sort of a lot of trickery there. But... They've managed to make the scale of this satellite dish that sort of emerges from... It's emerging from a lake that is in the
0: space of a dormant volcano. Can't get much more Bond than that, can you? (laughs) A giant intergalactic satellite comes out of a lake that is existing
1: in a dormant volcano in, like, Cuba? Is it? Of course it's in Cuba. (laughs) Of course it is. Um, But yeah, like, once again, the scale of the sets is so impressive. And even though it is a miniature, it's shot very convincingly. And I think there's a scene where Bond and Natalia are, like, sliding down the walls of this... um, satellite into its center and it feels massive and the ending sequence itself um is very exciting and climactic it's a great ending and it's just the right levels of ridiculous and it has possibly the greatest sean bean death in cinematic (laughs) history i love the fact that he falls about 30 stories (laughs) onto
0: hard concrete but he doesn't die In and of itself, that's superb. The fact that he has to get impaled by the whole satellite rig falling on top of him just is a perfect ending um, to that character. Like, it's so gratuitous.
1: Yeah, it's outrageous. And, like, as far as Sean Bean deaths go, absolutely exquisite. Yeah, it's up there, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely up there. Um, Did you have any other set pieces that you wanted to discuss? Not necessarily an action set piece, but
0: I really did like um, Q's lab. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I had that down too. It's almost like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, isn't it? All of these strange things going on. What I liked about that scene is there's a conversation between Q and Bond walking through his laboratory and he's introducing him to obviously like all of the gadgets that he's going to need in his niche moments in the uh, in the film but then the stuff that's happening in the background like all of Q's like technicians getting like caught in phone boxes that have yeah. like an inflatable going off inside them and getting fired from a parachute chair halfway across the room yeah. and all of this stuff's going on in the background and I just love the sort of entertainment of all of those little gadgets being tested as they're talking
1: yeah it's like slapstick humour isn't it just- like sort yeah, of popping off in the background. And I also, I've always loved Q as a character and I actually think um, the scenes, the Q scenes were the ones that always resonated with me most as a kid because they're quite lighthearted. Yeah. I like Q and Bond's relationship. It's just like, he's clearly like just so done with Bond. He just has no <laughs> yeah. time for his shit. He's absolutely sick of it. He's got no time for his shit whatsoever. Well, you
0: know why that is, don't you? You know why he's sick of it? It's because Bond just frivolously <laughs> destroys the millions of pounds worth of tech that he's building for him yeah i like the end of the sequence though and this is one of those quotes that i use in my everyday parlance is don't touch that it's my lunch i love that everything is not as it seems in q's lab so you pick up a pen and it's a fucking grenade and the phone box explodes and blah 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 and then the last thing he picks up is a baguette and you think this baguette's gonna be like i don't know an assault rifle or something but it is literally just
1: his sandwich I love it. And yeah, we have to give credit to uh, Desmond Llewellyn because, like I said, I was only ever really into the Brosnan Bond films, but as far as I'm aware, Desmond Llewellyn was Q for a large part of this franchise, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think he was replaced by John Cleese after he passed away. Yeah. who is was also an excellent choice for Q. But yeah, I mean, he is... In my mind, he will always be Q, Desmond Llewellyn, and he was fantastic in the role. He's almost like Victor Meldrew, isn't he? He's just this
0: grumpy old man that just ambles around and he plays it perfectly. And he's a really good foil to James Bond's, like modernity and vigor you've just got this grumpy
1: grandpa yeah he's just like oh, grow up 007 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so good yeah um did you have anything else you wanted to discuss
0: yeah i think um i also really enjoy just on a sort of meta level it has all of the beats of a dumb bond movie just to yeah. make that like crystal clear and i think you know there's some lovely moments where it's typical bond like why does Trevelyan leave him in that helicopter that's going to fire rockets at itself and blow him up with a big (laughs) giant escape button that he has to headbutt to get out of it? Like, there's all of these little moments that are are silly, and in other films you'd be like, that is a rubbish plot point. But Mm. in terms of the meta of James Bond... It works really well. And I I
1: think this movie utilizes those to its advantage. I think it's important that you've brought that up because I think the context of the wider Bond franchise will really determine whether or not you need rose-tainted specs to enjoy this movie I think yeah for sure and I think those were the points occasionally where the movie would lose me because obviously a part of Bond is the convoluted plot points and like the ridiculous scenarios that don't really have any bearing in logic yeah but because I'm not as steeped in the Bond mythos there were a few moments in the movie that took me out of it and that was actually one of them yeah it's stupid again I could appreciate it on an ironic level like I had a healthy dose of of irony in my enjoyment of this movie. We'll get to that a little bit later on, but that's mm. sort of there is a question about where does that ironic appreciation fit into determining whether or not you need nostalgia or rose tinted specs to enjoy a movie. Yeah. What makes a good movie, what makes a bad movie. But yeah, uh, no, I fully take your point sir. Did you uh, have anything else you wanted to cover?
0: Yeah. Well, that was my first contentious issue. It was the silly bond moments. Yeah. Uh, my second contentious issue is The music. Oh, yes. The
1: musical score. What were your thoughts on it? Very complex thoughts. I expect nothing else. It was as 50-50 as you could possibly get. There's a lot of aspects of this score that were recycled and used in the video game, which was, again, what I mainly associated that music with. And it's mainly those, like, deep, resonant, percussive noises and that, like...
0: It's like Cold War music, isn't it?
1: Yeah. For me, like, those
0: parts of the soundtrack is, like, if concrete was Sentient, yes. And you asked
1: Concrete to write music.
0: It would sound a bit like that.
1: Yeah, it's very industrial. Yeah. Sort of industrial ambient soundscapes almost. And I think that's where the soundtrack was at its most effective was when it was being like sneaky. But there are some very weird choices <laughs> that yeah. this soundtrack makes and I don't want to spoil that because I have some very specific points I want to make about that in the okay. bad stuff okay. section well what, what do you make of the soundtrack then the actual you know Goldeneye song as a theme tune I think it's pretty good. I think Tina Turner gives a great performance. It's written by Bono and The Edge, I know, though, which is so funny. So disappointing. It is, but it's not a bad... It's not the best Bond soundtrack. I couldn't tell you which I think is the best one, but probably Live and Let Die. Yeah, Live and Let Die is the best. Yeah, definitely. I think this one is actually up
0: there as one of the greats. Yeah. It hits the, we're going to harken back a little bit to the previous era of Bond, but we're going to give it a modern twist. To me, that's what the soundtrack sounds like. It's it's giving you full Bond, full melodrama Bond, but at the same yeah. time, it's sort of bringing it into the late 20th century with The Edge uh, writing it for you. I'd give it a 7 out of 10. Yeah, probably, yeah, 7, 8. Yeah. Erring on the side of 7 just because Bono and The Edge wrote it. Yeah. But, yeah, I think I think a 7. Seven's fine yeah we're on the cusp of bad things now yeah. because we're getting into the grey areas of this movie so why don't we just uh, take a quick break and then we'll come back and discuss the stuff that wasn't so good yes let's do that thank you
1: mister name's Bond James Bond then on the top on the
0: top on the top so Paddy do you want to talk to me about some of the things that you didn't enjoy as much in this film?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm almost so reluctant to do this because it's so nice to see you, like, happy when we're <laughs> discussing some of these movies and obviously, you know, admittedly, there's a lot to enjoy in this movie but I think there is also a lot to criticise and I want to start with the opening credits scene. So, we start the movie, as we said, with the pre credit scene which is this amazing action set piece which just pumps you up and gets you into the spirit of the movie and then you have the opening credits classic Bond credit sequence and as we've already mentioned you know the theme tune pretty decent but apart from the theme tune the opening credit scene is fucking awful (laughs) like the font first of all is horrendous. I don't know if that stuck out to you, but it immediately stuck out to me. It has absolutely no stylistic flair whatsoever. It looks like it's been lifted straight from like a PowerPoint presentation. And obviously this is like silly and it's Bond and it's silly, but I just couldn't help. Just like I had my head in my hands the whole way through because you've got this absolutely whack, boring PowerPoint font. And then in the background, you've got these naked women dancing on CGI hammer and sickles and destroying statues of lenin and yeah so the main title was designed by daniel kleinman and i just want to take a second to say fuck you daniel kleinman (laughs) it's a shit main title sequence um so yeah there was that just a very quick one i thought the opening credit sequence was absolutely horrendous oh yeah they
0: sucked hard and actually most of them do yeah it's always something that i'm very tempted to fast forward through and actually i used to do that as a kid like i'd i'd watch that epic opening sequence i'd be like that is exactly what i want from my bond movie (laughs) at 10 years old or however old i was and then you fast forward quickly through the abstract rubbish powerpoint that comes after it so you can actually get back to the film
1: but it's so funny you should say that because in this movie you know you fast forward through the absolutely terrible cheap looking opening title sequences and the first scene you get after fast forwarding through the opening credit sequence is this really bizarre car chase scene? I delete that scene.
0: There's so much wrong with it in terms of its inner workings, the actual scene yeah. itself. But like, what the fuck is it even doing in the movie? Like, it brings nothing to the table whatsoever, other than the only thing I can think of. Well, there's two things. We need to show that James Bond still drives an Aston Martin because mm. that's important for the IP of the franchise. Secondly, Ferrari are giving us a fuck ton of money to show off their car, so yeah. we need to have some form of way of getting these two cars in a scene together. That's the only thing I can think of.
1: Well, let's just break down this scene for people that haven't watched the movie recently. Basically, what happens is you cut from the credit sequence to Bond is in his Aston Martin with a colleague because that's what she is. She's a colleague. She's someone who's been sent to evaluate him. And he's just like racing around this like mountain pass and she's getting freaked out because he's driving too fast and they're making jokes about his penis and the car and all of this. And then Xenia on the top appears in the Ferrari and they have like a drag race around this mountain pass. And then the scene culminates with Bond flicking a switch, revealing a bottle of champagne and then getting off with the evaluator, essentially. Yes. And Yeah, I think you're right. I think the scene exists basically for the sake of old school Bond fans. I think it exists to appease people who may have been worried about Bond moving into this new era because it is so jarring compared to the opening scene. It's like it's been lifted from... A 1970s Bond movie. Yeah, well, if think about the way the actual sequencing of events happens
0: from the start of the movie. So you have a wonderful action set piece. That is one tick off the list for James Bond action set piece. Shitty titles, tick. Still calling back to the old Bonds because you've got silhouettes of naked ladies and you've got guns firing. Tick, tick, tick. Then you've got car chase, tick. Then you've got sex, tick. Then you've got casino, tick. And then you've got vodka martini, shaken, not stirred, tick. And that's all in the first... 20 minutes. Yeah. So I think you're exactly right there. It's like we need to appease people who are going to be worried that Piers Brosnan is not going to live up to the
1: To the older generation So you've got to get the tick list Of all those Bond moments But then that creates Like a jarring tonal mishmash In my opinion Like to someone who isn't bothered About the wider context of Bond And isn't bothered about Reaffirming the idea of this character That car chase scene Off the back of that Incredible action set piece Is so jarring And just totally (laughs) throws The pacing of the movie But I just want to pause here And talk about the main reason This scene is so jarring And that is the music That is used in this scene Oliver <laughs> Oliver Chipchase the music in this scene is unbelievable and in fact I've got this prepped I'm just going to send you the link here oh no you're going to make me listen to it aren't you I'm going to make you listen to it and I'm also going to drop it into the edit of the podcast while you listen to it so uh... click play and just have a listen to how horrendous that is <laughs> okay I'm going to click play now
0: <laughs> it's like Bourne soundtrack <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Mate, <laughs> this bangs. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> All right, okay, okay, I, okay, okay. I think that's enough. I think that's enough. I'm into it. I'm listening to it. So do you. <laughs> no, enough, enough. You've made your point.
1: Yeah. Now you sort of mentioned it there It's like a porn soundtrack But it's not just like a porn soundtrack It's like a midi reimagining Of a 70s porn soundtrack Combined with the Mario Kart theme tune It is so ludicrous And so tonally jarring I think that they did have Some creative differences And some issues with the
0: soundtrack During production And I think it was rushed to completion Or some of the bits had to be cobbled together I'm not sure of the details actually But I'm pretty sure i I read somewhere that the guy making the soundtrack basically quit halfway through mm. um, because they didn't like what it sounded like. So they've had to use this sort of like Frankenstein's monster type soundtrack that sounds like, yeah, a midi Mario Kart porno. Yeah, it's absolutely
1: <laughs> terrible. It's so bad. And it was just like, I went from being immersed in this movie and, you know, really into watching this movie to just like, it was like a record scratch It was just like, what the fuck is this? Which I'm sure is used in that soundtrack as well. Yeah, yeah. There's literally like DJ scratching over the top. It sounds like, you know, the DJ samples that you'd get on the keyboards in high school. It's like, (laughs) that is literally what it sounds like. Oh my God. You know, those preset songs that would be loaded onto the keyboards that we had. DJ. Yeah, 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 yeah. It literally sounds like that. So, yeah, that immediately threw me off. And I think that speaks to a wider issue in the movie of general tonal inconsistencies and an uncertainty around how self-aware the movie is. And also, obviously, the scene culminates with some classic Bond sexual harassment, I guess, in the workplace. Um, So just take that as you will.
0: yeah I mean it goes without saying doesn't it it even happens in the new Daniel Craig ones and they're trying desperately to retcon his horrible sexual misconduct yeah but like even in the new ones he still does it and like I said earlier like there's some beats to Bond movies that you absolutely have to have and you must see like the silly decision that the villains make to put him in situations that Mm. he can easily escape from the really niche gadgets that he's introduced to that he just uses at the right moment in the narrative Mm. like all of these things are silly Bond moments that you want to see but then with that come along the more harmful
1: Bond moments which are generally speaking the treatment of women yeah exactly and the sexual politics and that's the the main issue with this movie I think is that even though it's released in 1995 and it's trying to modernise the franchise it trips up in terms of its sexual politics which I still think are definitely lost in the 70s and you know we mentioned sexual harassment because you know at the end of that scene he's being evaluated by what is essentially a colleague and just kind of immediately leans over to her and starts getting off with her and you know obviously within the movie it's framed as though she's into it but you know it's kind of gross and there's actually (laughs) another moment where Money Penny actually calls him out on it you know he's like flirting with her and she's like this could be considered sexual harassment and James Bond is like oh really what's the punishment for that and and she just says one day you have to make good on your innuendos and it's just kind of like ah yeah gotta love the trivialization of sexual (laughs) harassment in male power fantasies eh but yeah so i don't know there's a lot to talk about obviously it's a bond movie it goes without saying and i feel like it's kind of like where do you even begin where do you begin literally where do you begin i want to go back to the line that m says to bond when they're in her office. She says to him, I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War. That line stuck out to me as really interesting because it's like, is this the movie's attempt at drawing a line in the sand to actually move Bond into the future? Or is it simply parroting the franchise's critics as a way of eventually kind of thumbing its nose at them? What's your verdict? I think my verdict is... It's sort of just like acknowledging the criticism for the sake of acknowledging it so they can say they've acknowledged it while still keeping things more or less the same. Yeah, I think
0: similar. I think that it's like, right, this is what we get criticised for. Attack is the best form of defence. We'll just, you know, acknowledge that it happens now. And if anyone calls us out on it, we can just say, well, you know, we acknowledged it, so... Fuck you. Yeah. But I also think that comes with just a general incompetency to be able to actually act upon it. Yeah. So like, okay, we're going to acknowledge that Bond mistreats women and has done for decades in our franchise – but we have no idea how we're meant to solve that problem. Yeah. (laughs) So we're just going to sort of say that it happens and then move on and hope no one notices. And they're still, like I said, they're still unable to do it. Like, even the Daniel Craig movies still fail in this area. And I don't know what's so fucking hard about it. Just don't have Bond have sex with anybody
1: (laughs) well no but you know no offence to you because I know that you love the Bond movies and no offence to anyone who is a massive Bond fan in our audience I'm sure there's many lovely Bond fans out there but essentially the franchise just has to appease the multitude of wankers that are still really into this (laughs) franchise and want to see him being misogynistic like you know but that can't be the majority now that can't be the majority it can't be but like Bond has always been seen as like an aspirational figure it's a male power fantasy that's what it's always been and that in many ways, is the appeal of the franchise to a large core demographic of its audience. And I just want to take us out of the weeds for a second because I feel like we're being quite abstract and let's actually talk about the incidences of it in this movie specifically. And there's just two things that I'll want to focus on, really. The first one is Natalia, who, as we've mentioned, I think is the movie's attempt at creating, like... A female protagonist with agency, in air quotes, a strong female character to be Mm -hmm. paired up with Bond. And to an extent, they do a good job with her. But I also feel like they undo her agency slightly by making her into one of Bond's love interests. And there's a very specific parallel in the movie that I want to draw attention to, which is when Alec Trevelyan sexually assaults her, which is on the train. Obviously, he's the villain of the movie, so that is framed as bad. OK, Alec Trevelyan's sexual assault of her is framed as bad. So what happens is he grabs her face and he forces her to kiss him. Doesn't he lick her or something? Yeah, he licks her and it is, it's very grotesque and she's struggling to get away like the whole time. So that's framed as bad. You know, Alec Trevelyan's sexual assault equals bad. Right. However... Uh, About 20 minutes later, when they get off the train and Bond and Natalia are on a beach in Cuba, a very similar scene happens between the two of them. It's not quite as grotesque. It's not quite as violent. But basically, Natalia is having a go at Bond. They're having a bit of an argument. She's like, why are you so cold? And she tries to run away from him. And he grabs her and forces her to kiss him. And she struggles. She tries to push him away, but then eventually gives in to the kiss. Mm. But when you actually put those scenes next to each other, they're not that different They're really not that different. Essentially, without the wider context of who Bond is and how the movie's trying to frame that scene, they are still both forceful sexual assaults, you know? (laughs) But when Alec Trevelyan does it, sexual assault is bad. When Bond does it, sexual assault is good and that's an unfortunate kind of trend within the wider franchise because obviously there's been loads of discussion about how sean connery's bond straight up raped people and it was framed in like a romantic way you know yeah so that's something that this franchise continues which is really unfortunate and obviously it's not quite as egregious as something like goldfinger but it is still bad um i don't know did you have any immediate responses to that before I move on no no I, I wholeheartedly agree with you it just goes back to the
0: point I made a minute ago just just don't have Bond have sex with anyone and the whole issue is solved yeah. even just for one movie just to test the water yeah. like right let's, let's have a movie where Bond just doesn't have to have sex with a woman mm. and we'll see how it goes if people are up in arms about
1: it then maybe we can rethink the decision but I <laughs>
0: probably I can almost guarantee no one will really give
1: a shit yeah but like people are weirdly precious about Bond you know it's yeah. so strange
0: oh man and I love reading comments when, you know, there was a rumor going around that James Bond was going to be
1: cast as a woman in the next yeah. movie and everyone went fucking berserk. Literally, people having aneurysms all over the <laughs> internet. It's fucking pathetic. But I agree. And the thing is, if there was ever a Bond movie where you could have done this, It's uh, this one, because Natalia is in many ways a compatriot to Bond. You know, like we said, she has agency and she uses that agency to further the plot. But then her agency is quite literally undone by Bond when she's manoeuvred into being his love interest. You know, he does essentially sexually assault her and it's framed in a positive way. And that sucks. And it completely subverts her agency. Yeah. And being damsel multiple points as well. Yeah, yeah. Which is unnecessary, I think.
0: It's a shame because, like, it's a step in the right direction, isn't it, for the character, but there's still those haunting shadows of the weight of the franchise over these female
1: characters. Yeah. On that, do you want to talk about On a Top? I do want to talk about On a Top, who is a fascinating character. And, um, again, I love Famke Janssen's performance as On a Top. I think it's just so over the top. And so... Evil. So evil. Just so (laughs) dastardly. She's dastardly, isn't she? She is. And she's clearly having a lot of fun playing that character. So again, I don't want to take anything away from her performance. But she's an interesting one, isn't she? Because she's playing a very specific archetype, which is that very extreme version of the femme fatale. It might be worth, actually, just
0: explaining... Because there might, might be people listening who don't have any clue what that even means. Uh, femme fatales are female characters who are duplicitous, um, who use their sexuality as a weapon um, for their own advantage. Yeah. And what tends to happen with this archetype is by the end of those films, the femme fatale is exposed for what they really are, which is usually some form of villain or criminal or crook. Um, and they're punished for that. Punishment is often jail um, but also, very often, death. Violence. Yeah, violence against that particular character. And it's because they use their sexuality, it's because they use their femininity against men that makes them that dangerous character. Yeah. So you think that she's an extreme version of that, which I completely agree with. It's like taking it to the nth degree, isn't it? What's problematic
1: about that for you? I guess what a femme fatale really represents is the idea of female sexuality being threatening. It's not only being threatening, but also being like grotesque inside. Some- Way In this
0: instance, like, her sexuality is not only explicitly dangerous to men because she can kill people whilst having sex with her, but it's also framed as being something repulsive. Yeah. Like, the fact that she orgasms whilst mowing down civilians with a machine gun sort of just alludes to it being this disgusting act. Yeah,
1: and it's also tied up in her sadomasochism because obviously she gets sexual pleasure from hurting people, but she also gets sexual pleasure from being hurt, which in a way means that she's inviting violence even more so than any other femme fatale that I've ever seen on screen. And I think basically... Bond's ability to overpower her, because he overpowers her at numerous points in the film and then eventually kills her, his ability to overpower her seems to indicate some kind of fantasy uh, to dominate even the most threatening forms of female sexuality. Yeah. So Bond is a male power fantasy. On a top is female sexuality taken to its most lethal, logical extreme. Therefore, Bond becomes a vehicle for men to overcome their own, you know, perceived emasculation or impotence in the face of dominant female sexuality. Whenever other female characters in Bond movies are being sexual, they are explicitly submissive to Bond. And that's sort of seen as the ideal version of female sexuality. Whereas in this, if you have dominant, aggressive active female sexuality it needs to be punished it needs to be met with violence basically is what the movie is saying
0: yeah order needs to be restored
1: doesn't it it's like
0: you can't have a female character more sexually aggressive than james bond that's his mo right he's the one who needs to be sexually aggressive and you can't have any characters let alone a female character being more sexually aggressive uh, because that would, you know, subvert his dominance in, in too obvious a way.
1: Yeah, and it sort of gives the movie a free pass for him to commit really pretty brutal acts of violence against her. I would say generally the femme fatale is a vehicle through which male violence against women is justified by a narrative, and this film does that to the nth degree.
0: Yeah, I think I think it's like, there's nothing inherently wrong with having two well-matched characters fighting each other. Mm-hmm. She is a an able combatant isn't she the way she fights him at the end like she's good at martial arts and fighting that's fine but it's like you said it's sort of like the violence has to be perpetrated against her in the most brutal fashion
1: because of her sexuality and it's also sexual violence yeah because the violence that she enacts on people is sexual therefore you have to dominate her sexually to overcome her yeah it's just very uncomfortable the way that uh, they treat that character but I feel like you could really pull at that thread forever so I think it's Maybe best to draw a line under that for now. Yeah,
0: so I think it's just fair to say, isn't it really, that she is simultaneously one of the most interesting characters in the movie, if not the most interesting, but at the same time, the most troubling.
1: Yeah, she's an effective villain, but that doesn't mean the dynamics the movie is exploring between her and Bond are not harmful. But yeah, at risk of... uh going on a little bit too long about this movie, Ollie. is there anything else you wanted to discuss?
0: Yeah, just uh, just a quick nod to the bonkers, fucking bloated (laughs) ridiculous narrative of this film Yeah, yeah, yeah. It lost me so quickly when they started dumping exposition about EMP and the Cold War and a global financial crisis. It would have been fine as a film for me if it was just like Sean Bean trying to get his own back on James Bond. Mm. Like it didn't need any of this convoluted mess of stock markets and it was just really baffling yeah. and what came as a consequence of that was just like lots of places and people and set pieces that probably didn't need to be there that really detract from like the essential entertainment of the plot I think like there were mm. moments in this film where I was just like wait why are we here now yeah, like what yeah, are yeah. we talking about now what are these people doing and that's a shame because it's otherwise really punchy yeah Um, it just suffers in places in critical
1: places actually from narrative bloat The movie does get lost in the weeds of history and geopolitics, and it doesn't do a very good job of it. Like, the political exposition is not communicated very clearly, which means it just leads to boredom and confusion. And the best example of this is Alec Trevelyan's backstory. So... Even trying to explain it now, it's really convoluted. But basically Trevelyan's backstory is that his parents were Cossack Russians who sided with the Nazis (laughs) against the Soviet (laughs) Union and then wanted to be repatriated to Britain. After the war, but then Britain, the British government betrayed them and handed them back to the Soviet Union. And then the shame of that made his father kill himself and his (laughs) wife. And then Alec Trevelyan was adopted by MI6 because they thought he would forget that his dad killed himself and his wife. I don't know. That's his backstory, basically, from memory. And it's fucking pointless. Yeah. The historical context they're providing for Alec Trevelyan's backstory is factual (laughs) albeit unnecessary but completely unnecessary from a narrative standpoint like any movie where you have to literally be on wikipedia for 20 minutes after finishing the movie (laughs) is not doing its job of communicating that context well it's like oh well maybe you should know your history it's like yeah maybe I should know my history but at the end of the day it's the movie's job to contextualize it clearly and it fails miserably at doing that
0: yeah well I think it's actually because of the vehicle that they're assigning that information to like there's definitely films that you can watch where you want to, after the film, go and dive onto the internet and find all of these interesting facts and, and figures and ideas that surround the movie. You want to, Some movies want you to do that and are sort of built around it. This is a big, dumb Bond movie. I don't want to be Googling the Cossack Revolution or whatever <laughs> the fuck after watching Sean Bean <laughs> fight Piers Brosnan. Like, I'm not <laughs> interested in that. So, like, it suffers immensely from this weird, convoluted, bloated... Backstory, motivation thing. Like, it could just be good guy gone bad.
1: Yeah, 100%. And like you said, it's not a bad thing if a movie inspires your intellectual curiosity and makes you want to do research about the events that inspired the movie. But there's a difference between that and you having to Google around to understand the basic plot. Yeah. You know, there is a difference. Exactly. But yeah, I think that just about does it for this section. And we're sort of kind of touching on things that I would have liked to have changed in the movie. So shall we move on to discuss changes that we'd like to make? Let's do it. You don't like me, Bond. You don't like my methods. You think
0: I'm an accountant. I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur.
1: A go to war. Uh, So, how are you going to change this movie then, Paddy, if you're given the opportunity to? Well, basically, I think we've sort of already touched on it, but, you know, first and foremost, been any sort of love interest like if you're going to introduce a female protagonist have it just be a female compatriot like we've said and I think that really would go a long way to undo a lot of the problems in this movie and the wider Bond franchise but the main thing that I would change is as we've indicated is Alec Trevelyan's backstory and his motivations so in the movie his motivations are kind of tied up with you know his perceived betrayal by Bond and the British government but also you know the historic betrayal of the Cossacks at the hands of the British government and you could just do away with all of that and instead what it could be is that Bond and Trevelyan are together for this mission at the beginning of the movie, and then Bond, for the success of the mission for England, he sacrifices his best friend and leaves him for dead. Yeah. And then, halfway through the movie, the reveal is still the same. It turns out this arms dealer that he's hunting down is Alec Trevelyan, who survived the explosion and has now defected and is working against the British government and has a personal uh, vendetta against James Bond. That is literally all you need. And it would just make that conflict so much more effective because it would add an element of moral complexity to Bond's decision to leave Trevelyan behind, you know? Yeah. Because there is none of that moral complexity in this movie because A, Bond already thinks he's dead because General Oromov pretends to shoot him in the head or something, which is another convoluted plot point that doesn't go anywhere. And also because his backstory is wrapped up in this like historic betrayal, Bond doesn't feel bad. Bad about killing him. His family were Nazi collaborators and that's basically why Bond is fine with killing him. And it takes the weight out of him being a former friend and colleague.
0: Yeah, and it's also like the morality of everything is, is subservient to the mission. Like... I'm going to sacrifice everything to get the job done. And is that the right frame of mind for what he's doing? Yeah. Just going back to that, Oromov shooting him. I think he does actually execute him because I don't think Oromov knows who Trevelyan is.
1: Hmm. So I think he does get shot in the head. He just survives. I actually don't know if you're right there because it's implied. And again, this is why this backstory sort of really throws a spanner into this film because it's implied that he worked his way into MI6 specifically to get revenge on the British government because he says like oh they thought I wouldn't remember but I never forgot how they betrayed my parents so I think it's implied that he was working with Oromov from the beginning.
0: No because there's a reveal on the train because because uh, Bond says to Oromov you know he's a Cossack don't you and Oromov looks like disgusted at it and he didn't know that information so I don't think he is on
1: in on it. But then why would he start working for Trevelyan because he's working for Trevelyan why would he work for a man who he shot in the head? Because he wants power in the Russian government doesn't he? Okay, okay. I'm drawing a line under this right now. Do you see this conversation that we're having right now? This conversation right here. The changes that I would make to this movie would render this conversation completely unnecessary. Basically, Trevelyan doesn't get shot in the head. He's not a fucking Cossack. He literally gets left behind by Bond and caught in an explosion, and that's why he defects to the other side and becomes, you know, a criminal leader of the underworld and tries to take revenge on the British government because he sees Bond as an extension of the British government and therefore wants to take his revenge. Done. That's my changes.
0: Yeah, that's essentially what happens in Skyfall, I think. One of the Daniel Craig movies. Um, yeah. In terms of my changes, it's similar really. It's just cutting some of the chaff out. I mean, outside of the backstories of these characters and their motivations, like some of the, some of the sequences just aren't necessary. Like, although whole train is great and he has a stunningly bad russian accent and it's and it's wonderful like unnecessary yeah um similar to the car chase after the titles you can just cut a lot of these little moments out that don't offer a huge amount of value is it two hours long this movie yeah it should easily be a tight 90 yeah it's a big dumb action movie and if it goes beyond 90 minutes it's gonna lose my interest Mm. and i think it does that to its detriment really yeah because actually the other stuff. The action is fantastic. It suffers because of this bloat that could quite easily be fixed. Like you could do a fan edit of this movie and it would be a lot more entertaining.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Before we end the episode, Ollie, I do actually want to ask you one thing because we sort of touched on the accents in the movie, uh, but we didn't really explore it. I don't want to go on about it too much, but I just want to ask you, which was the worst Russian accent in the movie for you? Because Coltrane was bad. Because both he and Alan Cumming basically have a Scottish accent. Yeah. But I don't think he was the worst. Who was the worst for you? Uh, I think Coltrane was the worst. Okay. Okay. I'm going to put this to you. It's definitely Oromov. And here's why Oromov had the worst Russian accent. He doesn't speak with a Russian accent. He speaks with a German accent, for fuck's sake, throughout the entire movie. He doesn't even use a Russian accent. It's just sort of like, because in the world of Hollywood, they're so used to casting Germans as bad guys, they didn't even bother to change his accent to a fucking Russian one. Like, go back and watch the movie. He has a fucking thick German accent. It's not even remotely Russian. Amazing. Amazing. but yeah, um, I'm pretty sure that just about does it. There's just one question I need to ask you, Wally. Do you think you need rose-tinted specs to enjoy this movie or do you think it still holds up on its own merit? Oh, mm. man. It's a hard one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, I think that
0: you don't need rose-tinted specs to appreciate the movie. Mm. Um, I think it's still a good action movie. Mm. It's a good Bond movie. Um, the thing that you probably do need, though, is like an attachment to the franchise in some way yeah because i think i think by having that attachment it'll help you overcome some of the pitfalls in its representation some of the pitfalls in its pacing if you've got a knowledge of the franchise if you've got nostalgia for the franchise you're going to appreciate this movie more but i don't think it's essential to enjoying it
1: do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And it's it's a tough one, isn't it? I watched the movie twice. And after my second viewing today, I was like, I'm still massively on the fence about this. Uh, but which, are you going one way or the other? You're definitely saying you don't need them. I'm saying you don't need them.
0: But what you do need is an appreciation of the franchise before and since.
1: Yeah, I don't know which way to go. I think I'm going to say that you do need rose-tinted specs. And this is why... So my memory of this movie and my nostalgia for this movie, firstly, was very, very wrapped up in the video game. Mm -hmm. And so most of the things that I remembered and enjoyed about this movie were sort of tied into my experience of playing the game. Secondly, I think you need a healthy dose of irony to be able to enjoy this movie. Yeah, And I think I didn't realise that was the case going into this. Like, I remembered it just being cool slick action movie which at points it is but I do think having a nostalgia for the movie and having nostalgia for the franchise as you've said will enhance your viewing experience mm-hmm. and I do think yeah the flaws in the movie and the flaws of the wider franchise in general just really really haven't aged well like at all no So, yeah, I had to go one way or the other. And I think I'm just going to say you do need Rose Tinted Specs to appreciate it as a serious action movie, but you can enjoy it with a sense of irony. Yeah, I think this one's been the hardest to date to do this
0: to. It's been a real challenge to think what nostalgia brings to the table in terms of appreciating this film. Yeah. As a summary, because I realise that we have talked about this a lot today. I'm so sorry, editing Paddy. I'm so (laughs) sorry. As a summary, I think it's fair to say that nostalgia is probably required to get round some of the more troublesome
1: aspects of the film, but it still holds up as a decent action movie overall. I think, as a summary, I'm going to say you don't need rose-tinted specs to appreciate it as a Bond movie, but you do to appreciate it objectively as just the standalone thing. That
0: was as convoluted as the plot of this movie. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, fucking
1: throwing stones in glass houses or what. <laughs> like, Jesus <laughs> yeah. Christ oh god that just about does it for this episode then as always I need to say thank you to Dilettante for letting us use their song My Dress as our theme tune you can check them out at Dilettante Songs you can check us out at Rose Tinted Movies we are on Instagram only at the moment but yes in the meantime I have been Paddy and I've been Ollie, and we have been Rose Tinted thank you very much for listening and we will see you all next time